Hello, welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja. And what follows this introduction is a webinar that I had conducted previously, a live webinar, and I thought I should edit it and make it available to a wider audience. So without further ado, here is an edited webinar, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Welcome back, all of you. After the Texas snowstorm and all the things, so hope you will all slowly join me here. Uh, I'm delighted to be back and uh, hope to have some, you know, wonderful conversations today. So today's webinar is a general question and answers webinar where I hope that you will have questions about post-colonial studies, about your research topics, or any other general questions about literary studies, and then I'll try to answer them. Now, please do keep in mind that, of course, you know, I don't have endless expertise, so some of the questions that you might pose, I, I may not be able to answer them, but we'll try our best. Now, also, I already have a few questions, and they come up every now and then in the comment sections. So sometimes someone will ask me to record a video on a given text or a short story or a novel. And most of the times, chances are I may not be able to do that immediately. Part of the reason is that to do uh, or to record a lecture on a novel, I obviously have to reread it, and that takes time. And it takes time because I have to reread it, take my notes, but also I have to do that while I'm, I am carrying a full teaching load and taking care of my students. So in some times when I can do that, that means I'm either teaching that novel or teaching that short story, and so I'm pretty current on it. Then sometimes questions that are posed in the comment section are too complex questions to be answered in the comment section. And that, of course, there is no way I can engage with them through the comments. If I have time, I usually, of course, try to record a, a supplementary video and answer those questions. But most of the times it's pretty um, hard to just immediately produce something and upload it if I have not prepared it beforehand. Uh, now, please do keep in mind that these lectures that you see, the videos, um, they sound simple and easy to do, but each one of them takes a lot of mental preparation. It takes a lot of thinking about organizing and then recording and editing. So it is a process and uh, it takes time. So now if you start with any of your questions, I'll wait for them. So Oracle, I have a question. Do we have any similarities between gender ideology and feminism? Well, I mean, uh, off the cuff, I would say yes. Because even if you look at gender in ideological terms, it can be from a feminist perspective. It can also be from an anti-feminist perspective, but ideology does play a role in it. So depending on which era of feminism you are talking about or which conceptual debate on feminism you're talking about, ideology can play a role in it and an engagement with it can also be ideological. So absolutely, it will have a role in that. Sahar, I had requested you to explain the fourth part of Can the Subvert. I hope you would consider my request. Fourth part of Can the Subvert and Speak. Yes, it is on my list. Uh, I just, of course, I just haven't had time in the last three weeks to do it. But also it is the hardest part of the essay. And uh, I do want 
to take my time on it. So that's why I can't really promise anything. But of course, I will one day record the final part of Can the Subaltern Speak? And then you will have it. Good question. And welcome from India, sir. Okay. Um, any other questions? Are there post-colonial critics who major on Caribbean literature? Yes, of course. I mean, Paul Gilroy, uh, even though based in London, uh, you know, his book is crucial on um, on the Middle Passage. Uh, then almost, uh, I mean, uh, Shalini Puri is another good scholar on that. And then if you just do a general search, the names will show up. But by and large, we all consider the Caribbean as part of the post-colonial canon. And pretty much all major scholars deal with the Caribbean. I have quite a few essays and articles about Caribbean literature, and I teach texts from the Caribbean. Okay, so Hatim, can you speak comparatively about can the subaltern speak and Orientalism? I mean, not right now. I don't know what the comparison would be because when you... The question that Spivak is trying to answer in Can the Subaltern Speak is the question uh, of representation. That whether or not scholars can assume that they don't need to represent the subaltern because subaltern can speak for herself. And that she takes from an interview of Deleuze and Foucault in which Deleuze makes that claim. Now, that claim is made in a different context because they are speaking as activist philosophers who become a relay. And But the assumption is that people know their own condition. And that has always been a big problem in Marxism too. How do workers know of their exploitation? And since Spivak is a scholar also of didactics, of how to teach so her argument is that no, in so many cases, the basic imp- basic idea of subalternity is that you cannot speak for yourself. And then even though you speak, even if you speak for yourself, there needs to be a didactics you know, like Paulo Freire and others to understand, you know, in whose interest are you speaking? So I don't know what the comparison would be because Orientalism deals with the larger disciplinary nature of knowledge production and how it creates the figure of the Oriental. But I have never compared the two. But one is expansive and large and the other focuses on an individual utterance, right? The speech act of the subaltern. And can can the subaltern do that? Or is there a need for representation as Spivak discusses it? content on Ajaz Ahmed available on post-colonial space? No, it is not. I haven't dealt with Ajaz Ahmed, even though I have used in theory uh, and some of the citations from it in quite a few of my articles. Uh, I I like Ajaz Ahmed's work and I I respect his work, but I think like, you know, sometimes people can be polemical, but in a slightly destructive way. So I, I didn't agree with his indictment of Saeed in, in theory. I think it was it was based on a pretty thin argument. But other than that, I, I respect his work, but I have not recorded anything on his work. Part of the reason uh, so many things are not available on the website is because most of the times I'm recording things that I'm actually teaching in my classes that makes the job easier for the classes, but also for me, I don't have to do extra prep, but maybe I'll put him on the list. I'm working on a paper on Caribbean literature So good. Okay, so you'll find quite a lot, especially Paul Gilroy's work on the, you know, people like C.L.R. James, Césaire and others. Those are also important. So uh, Anuradha, welcome. 
Are there any novels written in the present century that indicate post-colonial ambivalence? Pretty much all the novels. I mean, if you read any diasporic novel, right? The ambiv- what is ambivalence? Ambivalence is not to take a hard stance on one side of the sign or the other. So any novels, the inheritance of loss, right? If you read it, part of it is the diasporic life, right? But then part of it, the ambivalent part of it is that it's not a total adoption of the diasporic life. There is a certain nostalgia for the lost origins or the struggles that people face over here kind of complicate this simplistic story that if you get to Canada and America, your life would be better. So anything that does that in terms of people's life or genders is an ambivalent text. Um, Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children, people call it a novel of India. But if it's a novel of India, is it just a loving relationship to India and its history? Or does it also carry some critique of India and how it has come to be or where it is headed? That is what will make it ambivalent because there are no streamlined loyalties in the text. So anytime in a text, there is no just simple binaristic representation of a culture or its people, then it becomes an ambivalent text and you can apply it to um, any text that does that. Okay, so Hatim, going back to you, I meant Orientalism epigraph by Marx and Disraeli. You did answer that. Okay, but I also discuss it uh, in detail if you follow the chapter-by-chapter discussion of Orientalism on the playlist on Orientalism because I do dwell on uh, those two quotes as I discuss chapter one. So, Faraz, any idea of colonial linguistics in Asia? Uh, not necessarily. I'm not a linguist. Uh, I would, even if I hazard an opinion, it would be a very general opinion. But if you want to see the politicization of language and its role in creating um, native identities or troubling native identities, I would strongly recommend, you know, Decolonizing the Mind by Nagugi Thiango, which deals with issues of language. Uh, then reading Chen Weizhou's Decolonizing the African Mind, which also deals with issues of language and culture. And then uh, there is a novel in the castle of my skin. And as as you know it, I'll forget the name of the author. And that deals with those issues as well. But in terms of linguistic theory itself, well, that is kind of beyond my area of expertise. Okay. And Firdos Nazir, what are your views about decolonizing trauma theory in post-colonial literature? So, I mean, to be very honest, I don't have any views because the trauma theory is not part of my expertise in post-colonial studies. Uh, so, I mean, I could hazard an opinion, but that will not be an informed opinion. Just like anyone else in post-colonial studies, we pick and choose what do we want to specialize in. So our sub-specializations, you know, already take a lot of our time. And so, and I'm not a generalist, so I'm sorry, like I I will not have an opinion on that at all. So uh, Oroko, could you kindly elaborate on ambivalence? So there is a video on ambivalence on on the channel itself, but Ambivalence, you always have to read ambivalence in terms of linguistics in comparison to the structure of the sign. So there is a signifier and signifier. Ambivalence is when you do not believe in strong binaristic renditions of the sign. And so in terms of the linguistic sign, a sign is ambivalent if it conveys both senses and you decide which one do you want to go with, right? In culture, ambivalence then is not necessarily looking at culture in terms of this is my culture and this is yours, right? An ambivalent position would be somewhere where I'm okay with what my culture is, but I'm also fine with someone else's culture. is. So at every level, what it does is ambivalence 
makes the hard process of signification it makes it into fluid or it makes it into more than just this or that so just keep that thing in mind and then you can deal with anything from an ambivalent point of view it is also ambivalence is also mobilized as a weakness by people who believe strong binaries so if someone is deeply religious and you are part of that community and if you are ambivalent about religious they will consider you you know not good enough for that religion because they want that hard binaristic loyalty in most of the cases then ambivalence is considered a sign of weakness by traditional scholars or traditional people but for post colonial studies it's a very productive place to be in so this is here jay walken punk anarchist welcome it's larry okay you change your name okay black male studies a new academic field is pushing back against historical racial feminism are you familiar with this does it hold promise for black studies i am not very familiar with this i have colleagues who respond to scholars who are doing that so i don't have a particular opinion on it but if you going to it through a historical detour if you look at fanon black skin white masks one of the charge against fanon always is that he focuses too much on the male black psyche right and uh, the response that people give to that is slightly convoluted but it's also a little convincing the response that people give is that look fanon is thinking of what happens to psyche in the public sphere and the arab men and the black men in africa since they were subject to the law of the father more than the women right let's say in algeria in the public sphere the trauma that that causes is huge and the resultant violence towards their own but also towards the colonizers so that's why people who talk about fanon and his focus on the male psyche basically try to tell us is that we have to read that within the context of the black body in the public sphere under the law of the father that is white so that's what i know historically about engagement with the black body and black identity by fanon but this particular uh, focus on black male studies uh, to be very honest i have not encountered it in my studies or even in my conversations but that gives me a hint that i need to talk to my african american studies colleagues and see what they think about it okay, so spurthi uh, i already did explain the concept of ambivalence but i think uh, the video on post colonial concepts on ambivalence is pretty good and you can watch it and if you have any questions just post a comment there and i will try my best to answer this does shashi tharoor talk about post colonialism yes absolutely i mean his book you know the inglorious empire is can be part of the post colonial canon we can teach it because what it is doing is it's taking up certain claims that the british make about the good aspects of colonialism and he is debunking them and giving us a historical record of the rapacious nature of british colonial experience in india so we can absolutely include it in post colonial text as a post colonial text text so infinita so ambivalence would be a kind of ambiguity Yes and no. I mean because ambiguity is when you are unsure and it is related to maybe your own consciousness, right? And your own thinking. But when we say I am ambiguous about it, it's mostly about our own state of mind opining about something. Ambivalence is slightly more complicated because ambivalence basically on the linguistic level is ambivalence suggesting that a sign can be more than what it it suggests it is right or that the binary binary structure of the sign can be complicated and that instead of having 
this binaristic view good bad evil virtuous an ambivalent position then would be somewhere where you're neither this nor that so it comes from baba so that i think would be the distinction in cultural realm in politics as well right it's not necessarily a centrist position but it's a position that acknowledges that while this is good but what is offered as bad could also have some good in it right so that's kind of maybe i will read up some more and later do a conversation on ambivalence itself so that we can clarify these these things so yes oroko the castle of my skin is by george lemming it's a really important novel especially from a caribbean point of view but also within that novel he traces the whole educational system you will see the scenes in school and all which are pretty autobiographical as to how within the colonial educational system how the colonized body was shaped into a subject of empire but how also the mind of the students the minds of the students were shaped as subjects or objects of the empire so i highly if you are working on caribbean literature you know i highly recommend that novel okay so here is another question please give us some information on post colonial literary journals that's a very simple answer if you go to my website postcolonial.net right and uh, click on the link which says post colonial resources listed there on different pages are the major organizations major programs and a list of about 100 journals that in one way or the other are related to post colonial studies and it's on my website postcolonial.net and just click on post colonial resources and you will see them okay so what do we mean by neo colonialism and does it exist now what are the novels which can be studied as neo colonial literature uh, that's kind of a hard question for me to answer well what what we call neo colonialism and i have a video on it which i call because i would rather call it neo imperialism because colonialism by its very definition involves actual occupation of territory and then any novels that you read uh, rohintan mystery is a fine balance uh, later even uh, the inheritance of loss you can read them as neo imperialist or neo colonial novels because they deal with the issues of what happens to people in the post colonies angugi uh, tiango's devil on the cross would be a good example uh, in terms of what happens to people after these countries get independence but how they can still not escape the power of the metropolitan uh, you know empires and united states and and so the neo colonial phase or neo imperial phase would then be who controls the global economy and how does it impact people's lives then neo colonialism can also be a form in which we read within the given nation states what happens to the minority communities in india in pakistan in united states because they there there is another form of colonialism of course colonization of kashmir as well as colonization of palestine is is another form of internal neo colonialism because these people are physically occupied right so keeping all these things in mind any text that deals with these issues that invokes these issues either of internal colonization or imperialism of a larger culture over minority cultures within the nation state or the imperialistic nature of the global economy or global politics all of that would fall into this neo colonialist uh, phase of capital or uh, end the world this is sahar your videos on the introduction and scope of orientalism were very helpful you made the concept crystal clear thank you so much so yes thank you so much and it's not just helpful to you 
I mean, rereading Orientalism and then recording my thoughts on it actually has been a wonderful experience for me as well, because it has made me see things in the text that I had previously missed in my earlier readings. And so in a way, it is kind of a self-serving mission if I finish the series on Orientalism, which is, as I said, a very ambitious project. It won't just create a resource for anyone who's reading Orientalism and wants kind of a tour. I mean, not a full explanation, but kind of a guiding tour of the book. It would be useful to them, but it is absolutely highly useful to me for my own personal learning and understanding. Another, are you familiar with the novels, works that can be studied in neocolonial perspective? Please explain the difference between post-colonial and neocolonial. Uh, as I said, uh, you know, part of this is for you to also go through what is available on the channel. So if you want an answer to that question, you can just watch at least two of my brief lectures on post-colonialism and then one on neo-colonialism. So that will give you a frame of reference of how I am discussing the two. So that would answer your question about, you know, what is post-colonialism and what is neo-colonialism and where do you stand on that? And then if you take the tropes that are discussed in that, any novel that deals with issues of colonization, the contact phase, post-colonial phase or pre-contact phase can be read as a post-colonial novel. And then any novel that deals with the traumas of a nation-state post-independence can be read as a novel that talks about neo-imperialism and neo-colonialism. So any novel that tells you the story of how lives of people are impacted by the global policies, by wars in the Middle East or elsewhere would form but there are no hard lines. We don't make lists of this is a post-colonial novel and this is a neo-colonial novel because sometimes texts deal with both. Oroko, I'm reading Lemming's novel alongside V.S. Naipaul, Jane, Derek Walcott, Brathwaite and Trevor. Yeah, so that's our, I hope you're reading it for a longer project and not just for an essay. Because if you're doing, uh, I don't know which one of Naipaul are you doing? Uh, Jean Reese, of course, the White Saragossa Sea. But that in itself is kind of like a dissertation project to me and not just a paper topic. But I, I'll be very interested in reading it or hearing about it more. But that sounds like a very interesting topic. Spurti. So are you ex-military and can we know what made you <laughs> inclined towards literature and specifically post-colonial studies? So yes, uh, I served in the Pakistan army for 14 years. I was a career officer in uh, infantry and I was also deployed at that stupid war called the Siachen Glacier where India and Pakistan are stupidly trying to you know, destroy each other. But in 1996, I resigned my commission, but they gave me an early retirement. And I was then married and my ex-wife had moved to United States. So that's when I decided to come to United States. And at that time, the easiest way to come to United States was as a student. And then when we got here, um, we our marriage didn't last, but I decided to you know, get an education. I had had no civilian experience starting from eighth grade. So when I took admission and started learning new things, I knew that I always loved literature, even when I was in the army. So when you read and you take your tests and take your classes in the process, you're also defining what is it that you would like to study. And eventually post-colonial studies was something that enabled me to do political scholarship, but also it enabled me to use what I had brought with me from my own culture, right? my own cultural history, my own literary tradition. So all of these factors coming together made it you know, a no-brainer for me to study post-colonial studies. Where do you think is the place of R.K. Narayan in post-colonial literature? We teach his novels and short stories 
as part of post-colonial lit classes. I'm actually teaching this semester a horse and two goats. Now, if you watch my lecture on Ngugi Tiango, uh, he describes three phases of literary production by the native authors. So first one is always where the native authors are trying to write like the colonizers and their themes and everything else comes from there. The second phase is when they're writing in the colonizer's language, but they're create using the mythologies of their own culture. And that's where R.K. Narayan fits in because, you know, like, uh, like Faulkner's Yoknapatawa County, he created create Salmagundi, right? Uh, a rural um, imagined community and most of his stories are set in there. So he would be absolutely considered part of the post-colonial canon. So please mention some theorists of neocolonialism. Uh, off the top of my head, I don't think so. I mean, it's not studied so much. By and large, every post-colonialist, Robert Young, Edward Said, Gayatri Spivak, Homi Baba, all of them also critique neo-imperialism and neo-colonialism. Neo-colonialism is not taught here, at least in the United States, as a subfield of study in English departments. Now, if you go to Latin American studies, then you will encounter people like Walter Manvolo and others who do decolonial studies. But neo-colonialism, as far as I know, is just a sub-part of what we do in post-colonial studies. It is not a huge subject of study as a subfield of study in the English departments. So you can read Walter Manvolo and other people who criticize neoliberalism, globalization. Um, I have a couple of videos on some good books on that. And maybe that would enable you to critique neo-imperialism. Uh, but we don't teach it or study it as a subfield in the English departments. It can be a chapter in a dissertation, and even there people will have to argue as to why they are calling it neocolonialism. Because unless you're talking about Palestine and Kashmir or other territories occupied by nation states where there is physical occupation, technically it is not neocolonialism. You know, it is imperialism. So that's kind of my answer to that. So or I intend to write a thesis from the paper. Oh, good. So then if all those authors, if they are part of a thesis, then I think it would be a wonderful thesis. But I do recommend read Paul Gilroy, right? Uh, especially, um, I don't know, I keep forgetting. It's one of the most important books on the Caribbean and I'm, right now drawing a blank about its its title, but it's about the middle passage. Cool. So let me go back and see if I missed any questions. So also keep in mind, like uh, quite a few times I get these comments on one video or the other where people are asking me to give precise answers. Um, I mean, one thing, and that's what brings ambivalence again here, is one thing in literary studies is that there are no precise answers, unless you are asking about date of birth of an author or when a novel was published. Conceptually, you always know that what you are saying can be challenged, can be rearticulated, can be said differently. So there are no like hard and fast definitions. And when you make an assertion, you basically tell the readers in your writing, this is my understanding of post-colonialism. Here is why I am defining it like this. And this is what it will enable me to do. So there are not really, so to speak, scientific answers to these questions. Um, So if you are talk if if your oracle if your um, dissertation also involves uh, education, uh, so of course they've probably already already taught you Maslow, but if you want to use a revolutionary psychological study of how education works, 
I would highly recommend read Eric Erickson. His work is from mid 70s to 80s. And just look up the concept Eric Erickson and generativity. This, these were huge concepts and they are contra behaviorists. But what he basically asserts is that we human beings are by our very nature um, geared towards doing good in the world, right? And we want to be known for that. And so generativity is that natural impulse to help others. And that can be mobilized for, for an educational dissertation. But Paulo Freire would be a good example of that. But, you know, Maslow is the big name. Uh, PAJ is a big name in education psychology. Uh, I don't know any of the contemporary psychologists, but re even B.F. Skinner and the behaviorists have something to say about didactics and teaching and how does it impact uh, the student psychology. So I think that should help you in that sense. So can you elaborate on native people's contributions on Orientalism? Um, I mean, native people's contributions would be if they become part of the Orientalist discourse, right? And start producing works that see their own world from the point of view of the colonizers or of the Orientalists. So quite a lot of plays like uh, from Egypt or even stories in India in which India is described kind of from the point of view of Britain would be kind of an Orientalized view. And then they will be part of that Orientalist discourse. I don't know of any specific authors, uh, especially in contemporary fiction. But you see the instances of that, how people inter internalize the European way of looking of their own culture. For example, if you're from India, you're probably familiar with Sir Sayyid Ahmed Khan. If you read his journal of travel to England, and when he writes about India, with that experience, that is an orientalized view of India because he says there is a moment there where he says the English call us animals and that's exactly who we are because the matrix of judgment for him has shifted. The comparative nature of his experience now makes him look at India as an inferior place, as a place that is not at par with Europe. So that could be one example from, from the Indian context. Julia, do you know anyone specializing in Italian post-colonial question considering Italy's imperial That's a really good, um, who mentions it? So I don't know anyone particularly who does that. I, I'm pretty sure there are some people who absolutely are dealing with that. Um, but not just the Italian in Libya and in, in Africa and Libya, but this is something that I would like to explore, right? I mean, we know that we used Ita Italian theorists, right? We knew we, from Antonio Gramsci to, you know, Carlo Barcelone and people like uh, Franco Berardi and all these, and, and, and Italian Marxism is used by quite a lot of, but, let me do some research as to who has covered, you know, the Italian colonialism. Said doesn't do much of it, right? And not any of other major theorists, but I'm pretty sure that there are some people who have worked on it. Could you please suggest me a topic to write a paper where I can apply the critical lens of Edward Said or Spivak? Sorry, uh, I am very reluctant to, you know, just dish out topics because uh, when someone comes to me with a paper idea, the only way I can help them with if I know they, where they are, what have they read, what have I taught them, so in that sense, when my students come to me with their paper topics, I'm already familiar with where they are in their growth as scholars. So it's pretty hard to, uh, and then 
in order to find out a good paper topic, you also have to do your own research and find out where a certain conversation is on a topic. All of that goes into deciding where you want to enter the conversation. Now, if you want like a general guideline of how to come up with a thesis topic or how to come up with a paper topic, I do have a couple of videos on it. If you just uh, do a search on the research and writing playlist, they will show up. But I'm very reluctant to you know, suggest here is what you can do with Spivak because I have no idea you know, what is important to you, what your level of education is, what your level of engagement with the text is, because that we let our students drive that and then we guide them. So I don't grasp if, if hybridity is a positive term referring the individual who has integrated a mix of the two cultures, or is it a negative term for a status of subject that struggles in between? That is a very good question about hybridity. You know, all of you probably already, of course, know that I have not touched Homi Baba in any way on my channel. And part of the reason is that I cannot just go and record a video on any of his concept, even though a few I have done. So hybridity as a concept is not necessarily about just uh, a person living in two cultures. It's more complex than that. Where Baba talks about is, is at the level of the sign. Okay, so if you want to the sign to be hybrid, what he's suggesting is, remember he talks about the interstitial gap, third space of enunciation. What is that? A lot of people don't explain what it, what it is. Now, the interstitial gap or third space of enunciation actually is creating a space between the signifier and the signified. So what he is saying, and that comes from Derrida as well, is that in the process of signification, when I invoke the signifier and it points me to a signified in my mind and a referent in the word, there is space there where we can enter something else besides the signification itself. And that is the hybrid space. So neither this nor that, right? Something in between that has traces of both. Right. So in that sense, what Baba is talking about cultural hybridity is that it is not simply that. So first of all, it defies the idea of a pure culture. So for Baba, there are no pure cultures, no pure Eastern culture, no pure Western culture. The cultures are always already hybrid. Now, the process of colonization, what it does is that the colonizers introduce new things into the native culture. But in return, the natives also introduce cultural difference in the colonizer's culture. And hence, for Baba, hybridity is a more productive space, right? It is a more productive mode of dealing with issues of culture because purity first of all, is a myth, but it can become deeply destructive. And hybridity is also more promising and productive because it creates space for cultural difference, not cultural assimilation, but cultural difference where I can live with you knowing that these are the things that are different between us, right? And I can live with that without effacing that difference. Um, now, coming to the question of whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing, there are some major critiques of hybridity. One, of course, by Robert Young. And Young's critique is that hybridity, and he is not for pure culture. His critique of Baba's use of hybridity is that, look, hybridity itself is a loaded signifier. In the colonial history, hybridity was offered as a trade assigned to the natives. And the Europeans would claim that these natives can become, can be Europeanized, but they will be kind of bastardized Europeans. They will be hybrids, so they will not be equals. 
but they would constantly need tutelage because otherwise they will revert back to their primitive animalistic state. So what Robert Young suggests is that hybridity is such a loaded topic and has so much of a history of racialized view of the natives that to make it central to post-colonial studies as a redemptive and productive concept does a disservice to post-colonial studies. That's his argument. The other critique, major critique of hybridity comes from Feng Chia. In a, a chapter in a book, edited by Feng Chia and Bruce Robbins called Cosmopolitics. And what Feng Chia's critique is, it's on two levels, on philosophical and practical level. I'm not going to go into the philosophical level because I'll have to reread the essay. But on practical level, his critique is that when you read Homi Baba, what you understand is that the most productive person is the person or the most productive subjectivity is that can escape the very givens of life, right? What does he mean by that? The givens of life are where you are born, what your class is, what regional identity do you have? So for Baba, the most productive human subjectivity is when you can escape that and enter another space, literal and other, where your identity can take in other aspects of other cultures, right? And what that does is it privileges those hybrid subjects who can cross a certain border and come and live in Europe and United States and become these hybrid, unmoved subjects, right? But, you know, Feng Chia's question is, what is the accounting for the millions upon millions who cannot cross that threshold, right? Uh, how do we account for those? So these are two critiques that I know of, of the concept of hybridity. Now, I, of course, I have not uh, recorded on this, but when I record a lecture on hybridity as a concept, my hope is to, first of all, record a nuanced understanding of hybridity from Mikhail Bakhtin, right, coming from there, then through Baba, and then also give a detailed account of the critiques of the concepts. So that's the best I can do uh, at the moment, Infinita, about hybridity. Firdos Nazir. When talking about cultural and language, we are still colonized as it is evident, is there really politically decolonized subcontinent in contemporary time? I don't know. I mean, in one way, yes, we are colonized if you think only in terms of pure culture, right? If you think that we absolutely have to either reinvent or retrieve the modes of thinking and doing things that are primary to our culture. And if we cannot do that, if we are borrowing ideas and concepts and practices from former colonizers, then yes, we are absolutely totally colonized because the measure that you have picked up is a purest measure from the past. Right? The second level is what Chinwei Zhu talks about, the aerialized natives. These are natives who inherit the post-colonies. They are European in their thought, European in their intellect, they and they are part of the materialistic neoliberal culture. And so they are the ones who deride native cultures. They are the ones who look down on rural people of their own country, and their loyalties are aligned with the international order. Now, challenging that, you don't have to do it from a purist point of view, would be worthy. So is the subcontinent still colonized? Yes, in so many ways. You know, look at our, our uh, intellectual elite. If you are at a university, if you are a professor who tells your students that you must use Foucault to make this argument, you cannot use Tagore, right? Or if you're going to quote a Hindi text, or an Urdu text, uh, you can't translate it yourself and cite it. Someone in the West must have translated it. That's colonial way of looking at it. Uh, if the 
Indian and Pakistani universities um, make it a point to send their PhD dissertations to Europe and American scholars to review, right? Uh, because they don't trust the local reviewers. That's the colonial mindset. So that means, yes, they are colonized. So you have to, we can't make blanket statements about whether or not some place is colonized or not. You have to be specific in instances of culture and politics where that influence is still operating. And then figure out how to decolonize that, how to challenge that. Okay, cool. Um, so, okay, Infinita, thank you. But as I promised, I will record something more substantial on hybridity and other aspects of Baba's theory and then post them sometimes in the sun. Can we say that he is giving more importance to hybridity than identity? Well, not really, because identity, even when you are hybrid or Culturally, that is an identity. Um, any identity is an identity, right? Not being hybrid, being a purist, being a fundamentalist, the basic aspect of it is that there is a core identity there, right? Uh, the question is, how do you define the question of identity? Is it, you know, in purist terms, in hybrid terms, in religious terms? So I won't look at hybridity and identity as a as these two binaristic structures, hybridity is a kind of identity. Right? So that's all I have today. We will see each other uh, next time, okay? And do all take care. And as always, unless they are too complex, you can always post your comments in the community section or under any given video, and I'll get to them. And please do also check out our Facebook page. Just look for Postcolonial Space on Facebook, uh, Facebook group, and it will show up. I would love to have you there. And also check out our podcast, right? It's also called Postcolonial Space. So that's all for today. Thank you so much for joining me, and I will now see you next week. All right? And as always, peace and love.